Oh, the earth wants you, children. Welcome to our radio show podcast. This is Reverend Billy with... Savitri D. We've got rubber chickens. We've got billions of teenagers. We've got the Amor Leopard and Deanna Taylor. Amen. We've got Sun House with Deathbed Letter. We've got the Stop Shopping Choir with Breaking Into Public Space. And our endangered animal of the week. Uh, the Amor Leopard. Hallelujah. But I, ha- I have a feeling we'll have many threatened animals in the, in the course of hearing the news from the natural world. Savitri D. Pilgrim's Pride Corporation based in Waco, Texas, recalled approximately 101,310 pounds of ready-to-eat breaded chicken patties that may be contaminated with rubber. (laughs) 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 All the world wild horses have gone extinct. We've all had chicken that tasted like rubber. That's right, especially from Waco, Texas. (laughs) All the world's wild horses have gone extinct, according to a study Thursday that unexpectedly rewrites the horse family tree. What most people thought were the last remaining wild horses on earth, known as Prowalski's horses, were actually domesticated horses that escaped their owners, which means there are no living wild horses on earth. The romance is over, people. What about all the wild horses in Nevada? No, they're not wild. They escaped ranches? They're feral horses, not the same. Venezuelans reported losing on average 24 pounds in body weight last year, and almost 90% now live in poverty, according to a new study on the impact of a devastating economic crisis crisis and food shortages. Over 60% of Venezuelans surveyed said that during the previous three months, they had woken up hungry because they did not have enough money to buy food. About a quarter of the population was eating two or less meals a day. Water use is growing at twice the rate of population growth, and if this trend is not reversed, two-thirds of the global population will face water stress by 2025. This week in Belrose, Louisiana, 50 activists temporarily blocked construction activities of the Bayou Bridge Pipeline. The protest consisted of a prayer ceremony led by indigenous elders. The prayer and protest was organized by Lo et la Vie Camp, which aims to protect our water and our way of life from the Bayou Bridge Pipeline. The ceremony lasted for a little over two hours and ended peacefully with no arrest. The group is waiting for a decision in federal court on whether or not the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers errantly issued a permit for the pipeline to cross the environmentally sensitive Atchafalaya Basin. A decision is expected in the next week. Indonesia is one of the world's worst contributors of plastic pollution into the ocean, with an estimated 20,000 tons of plastic washing into the ocean from Indonesia, 16% of the global total. Four Javanese rivers are listed in the global top 20 of plastic polluted waterways. What form is that plastic taking? All is that, is forms. A lot of single-use plastics, forks, cups, straws, plastic lids, uh, plastic bags. Is there uh, industrial I mean, plastics as well? It's a little... Uh, c- no, not so much. It really is like it's domestic. Tourist, yeah, it's yeah. like tourist plastic, and it's it's so bad that in in the morning there they have huge volunteer squads who go out and clean up the beaches because it's affecting tourism adversely, um, and and people. It's also just affecting their lives badly. But it, especially during the winter months when the south winds blow, um, 
just unbelievable amounts of garbage just washes up onto the beach every single day. And they go out in the morning, they clean it up, and then it comes the next day as well. But they do, a lot of it does come directly from the island. It's not just the case that there's some Chinese dump over there where right. it's flowing in like is happening on, on, on the mainland. Um, last month, the U.S. Energy Information Administration predicted that American oil output would soon surpass 10 million barrels a day, eclipsing a previous record in 1970 when conventional U.S. oil production peaked. Next year, the U.S. is on target to outstrip Russia and Saudi Arabia to become the world's largest oil producer and will become a net energy exporter <sighs> within five years. Thus, That's a tragedy. the pipeline infrastructure that is uh, <coughs> going crazy all over this country. Chile will reserve a 10 million acres wilderness in Patagonia, a new conservation area Amen. that will be three times the size of Yosemite and Earth Yellowstone Alleluia. combined. Sunscreens Tompkins. cause the rapid and complete bleaching of hard corals, even at extremely low concentrations. The effect what? of sunscreen, sunscreens did, did are killing. Did you just go to another news item? I did. <laughs> sunscreen, sunscreen is is as dangerous for coral reefs as climate change. So, you must not use what? nanoparticulate sunscreen anymore anywhere near an ocean and in many places they are restricting the use of these oxybenzones and these nanoparticles um, more than half of gun owners do not safely store all their guns more than half people who were bullied by siblings during childhood are up to three times more likely to develop psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia in early adulthood the researchers found that the more frequently children are involved in sibling bullying, either as bully, victim, or both, the more likely they are to develop a psychotic disorder. <sighs> and <coughs> you're going to make it to the end of the news here. It's I'm trying. debilitating. When it comes to financial investments, <laughs> hedge fund managers hire in dark triad, so-called so dark triad personality traits, psycho you know, psychopathic traits, narcissism, Machiavellianism. Great word. Uh, they perform more poorly than their peers, according to a new personality psychology study. The difference is a little less than one percent annually compared to their peers. So they. Who are they again? I, I'm these are the Machiavellian uh, investors, hedge fund managers, displaying dark triad personality traits, who are frequently rewarded and are are sought after because it has long been thought that these characteristics are good for hedge fund managers and traders. But as it turns out, over time, not so good. So <laughs> we can give up on those guys. Yay. Um, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and our final news today, a new study finds that the methane escaping from Pennsylvania's oil and gas industry causes the same near-term climate pollution as 11 coal-fired power plants and that it is five times higher than what oil and gas companies report to the state. Natural gas is mostly methane, a super potent greenhouse gas which traps 86 times as much heat as CO2 over a 20-year period. So even a small leakage rate uh. from the natural gas supply chain and that's why we're the top. Large climate impact. That's why we're the top gut, uh, oil producer. Enough to gut the entire benefit of switching from coal-fired power to gas for a long, long time. Now, this is the final argument against fracking. 
hydraulic fracturing. I feel like we didn't stop frank- fracking when we had the chance. Well, or did we have it? We created chance? sacrifice communities. We stopped it in some places and not others, and that is what we have only ever been able to do as environmentalists. And what our our charge is now, we must change that and protect everyone, not just the lucky few. Here now in New York, we're, we're quite safe from fracking, but we're all around us. We're at pipelines. We're going to be uh, up in Boston. We'll be opposing a pipeline in April. You know, it's it's uh, every pipeline should be opposed. The, the infrastructure proposed for this country for pipelines, mostly for export. You heard that piece of news that we will be a net exporter mm-hmm. of uh, of fossil fuels within five years the the pipelines that are going in especially on the east coast these are for export Uh they are not pipelines yeah stop them all stop the pipelines people stop them all stop them some radicals out there in those little uh, video cameras we have some radicals and they've chosen quite strategically areas that do not have a history of activism to do this talk to killian here and tell tell him what you will do what pipeline you will stop if you need help please let us know let's go to a song sunhouse Death Letter Blues. Death Letter Blues. I got a letter this morning. How do you bring it red? Say, hurry, hurry, the gal. You love is dead. I got a letter this morning. I say, how you bring it red? Suitcase took her down the road. Oh, when I got there, she laid on the cooling board. I ground up my suitcase. I said, I took her down the road. I said, when I got there, she laid on the cooling board. You know, I walked up close. Look down in her face, it's a good old girl, got the lay head of judgment day. I say I walked up close, I say and I look down in her face. I say it's a good old girl, got the lay head of judgment day. You don't look like 10,000 people were standing around the burying ground. I didn't know I loved her until I let her down. Looked like 10,000 standing around the burying ground. You know I didn't know that I loved until I began to let her down. You know I didn't feel so bad until the good old sun went down. I didn't have a soul. To throw my arms around I don't feel so bad Until the good Lord sun went down I said I didn't have a soul To throw my arms around You know it's so hard to doubt Someone don't love you Don't look like a satisfaction Don't care what you do it's so hard to love someone that don't love you. You know, they're all crazy, so 
Sorry about all the bad news, friends, and I promise to find more good news for you in the near future. Um, I'm very honored today to have with us in the studio Deanna Taylor, who is a really an, an expert in her field, I have to tell you. She is the founding director of the Hemispheric Institute of Performance and Politics at New York University. She is a, also a Spanish and Portuguese professor there at NYU, and um, performance studies is she knows as much about this as anyone on earth I, i'm pretty sure and um put your lips right on that microphone there we're Amen. just really happy to have her here today um diana we start by asking you to describe your favorite place on earth well my favorite place on earth is tepotzlan morelos mexico so that's very easy and it's this tiny tiny little indigenous town in which i'm fortunate enough to live that's up in the sacred mountains of the Teposteco. It's a town that defines itself by its commitment to resistance. So it's a model in many ways and gorgeous. Beautiful. Great. And you've been spending a lot of time in Mexico recently. Well, I'm from Mexico, so I've been going back more often than I've been able to in the past. But I've been living, I have a place that I've been living there since, I don't know, the past 20 years, whenever I can get away. So tell us a little bit, if you would, because you have experience on both sides of this artificial divide, this border between mm -hmm. Mexico and the United States. Tell us a little bit what you see from those two perspectives. Well, there's a couple of things. First, that the violence that we see, because there's a lot of violence, right, about that relationship with all the talk about the wall and the uh, racism and all of this that's going on, um, that the infrastructure is absolutely global. So we can't separate them out. Um, however, what you see in Mexico is very different with all of the violence that we're seeing and living in Mexico right now from the violence that we're living and we're seeing in the United States. And I think that if I had to define them or differentiate, I would say the violence in the US has attacked us at the level of civility so that we are suspicious of each other. Yes. The move is, I can't trust anybody. That person may have very different views. Um, maybe they don't belong here. Maybe they think I don't belong here. So the kind of erosion of a sense that we could possibly be a community, I think, is one of the most violent things that's happening here. And I think even if we can revert some of the terrible things that are coming down every single day with the Trump administration, it's going to be very hard to build up that trust and that civility. In Mexico, on the other hand, it's really clear who the bad guys are. Mm -hmm. And the bad guys belong to um, 
I would say what we have is a collusion of the narco, the drug cartels, and the government. And it's almost impossible now to separate them out. So you have very strong, coordinated interests in maintaining a certain level of crime. Mm-hmm. But people know where that is, and they know where it's coming from, and they're not turning this violence against each other. Mm-hmm. So I feel much, much safer in Mexico in terms of just living there than I feel here, where even people have said to me, in my own apartment building here in New York City, you don't belong here. You're not from here. right? So that level of, of if you want... Um, Lack of civility is one of the things I find very alarming here. Do you have an idea about how, what kind of activism would restart civility? We don't usually think of activism as having that role. Activism gets people angry or churned up or starting to ask new questions. But starting civility again, being gentle and trusting towards each other. Well, I, I think that the way that activism has very often in the past created communities of resistance in and of itself creates the trust and the Mm -hmm. civility. I mean, if you think of, for example, uh, people in Occupy living together in the open air um, with their belongings and so forth, I'm not saying that no bad things happen. Of course, bad things will always happen. But there was an element of trust and community there that you wouldn't have if you're in some other part. The same thing happened in Mexico City in the huge, big protests in 2006 after the 2006 elections were stolen, where you had hundreds of thousands of people protesting, living on the streets in a complete community. Sharing with each other. Sharing, cooking for each other, putting all their books together, doing the art projects all together. They had, in the 50 days that that event lasted, they had... 3,000 art projects <laughs> that were communal, right? And that's what kept people going. People so were I working think, together. in fact, that activism is the model for bringing people back together and being able to say, we have to work together in order to do everything from the smallest thing, how do we eat, to how do we um, you know, read, how do we learn, how do we use space. I felt like the Zuccotti Park, remember this? Savitri, we had the sensation that it was the best show in town. It was better than the MoMA exhibit. You know, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was better than the, the Broadway show. Um, it, was a, it was an exposed community where you saw all the organs and all the flows of energy and electromagnetic magne- charges. Uh, it also appeals to some part of humans that want to be out, that want to be seen that want to see others that it, there's a kind of um, mixing that goes on in those situations that um, I think we crave I mean it, what's it's what makes New York wonderful on a hot summer night you know the people are outside they're finding each other I wanted but we to were, ask we you were cooking with the medical tent right. with the media table we had places to lecture with the drum yeah. circle we had a library yeah. it was like looking into a body it was like looking into a small town and it really felt like, like a uh, a subcutaneous, uh, like the the surface had been stripped away, because we were bordered by police 
They were shoulder to shoulder. The police were so in a line around us, astonished that this little pocket park had been right. <laughs> rededicated. Well, and of course, later we find out that there were plenty of police inside. Oh, the yes, park yes. Zone, <laughs> as there always are. But now, I know you've spent a lot of time with the Zapatistas and have studied the Zapatistas a lot. Can you talk to us a little bit about the lineage of the Zapatistas and how you think that that came down to us in, in the present moment of our activism? Well, I think that um, activisms are always related. They're genealogically connected. So, for example, I, I wouldn't know where to put the origins, if you want, of the Zapatista movement because there's been so many indigenous uprisings, not just in Mexico but throughout the Americas. The most immediate, if you want, would be the massacre of the students in Tlatelolco in 1968 in Mexico. And the students had organized a massive student movement, asking for rights, asking that their colleagues be released from jail, asking that they have a face-to-face -face discussion with the president of Mexico, and they were just gunned down in full public view. Their bodies disappeared. So right after that, the whole country went silent because if you're going to kill hundreds of students in broad daylight, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to be out there on the street saying what you think. A lot of people disappeared during that period. It was right at the time of the Olympics. It was, and it was because of the, the Olympics. Mexico Olympics. It was because of the Olympics that the government decided they can't. They were embarrassed. They were too protest. embarrassed to, to. Absolutely, but um, the U.S. also supported that, and for the well, I mean, up until the present, the U.S. and the Mexican government have carried out what we call uh, a dirty war in Mexico. Although we didn't know about it until quite a few years later about how many people were disappearing during that period. So which is why I'm saying the problems are always global. It's not mm -hmm. like Mexico has its problems. Mm -hmm. They're related. So, but from all of that catastrophe, students who were then students and then went on to become leaders in movements started their own movements. And the most famous one is only Subcomandante Marcos, right, who went on to work with the Zapatistas in the 80s and then with the uprising in 94. So that uprising had huge repercussions in Mexico. Mm. So there's not one activist organization that you visit now that will not say that they started again in 1994, mm. that it was possible again. So out of this absolute disaster, mm. we have this flourishing of movements. Then um, the Zapatistas in 95, I think, invited activists from all over the world to Oventic and Chiapas and the Highlands to do the first anti-globalization meeting. That was followed in 1999 completely separately by the anti-globalization meeting that went in opposition to the WTO, mm -hmm. right, in Seattle. And from there, I mean, you can see all of the groups that right. claim their origin in that period and in those movements. So they're all working at the same time. You know, we don't see, like, major wins, major wins, and so people are getting depressed and think that nothing is happening. But everybody's rehearsing and everybody's strategizing and, s and uh, communications are getting developed, networks are getting developed. Occupy, when Occupy comes on the scene seemingly again out of nowhere, right? It's only making visible in a way what's been there all along. And when Occupy stops being visible and it kind of dwindles and people are all depressed, it's like, no, don't be depressed. These are people who have already committed themselves who are there. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be doing other things. So these, I think these forms of activism are always related. They're always opportunistic in the best way. That mm -hmm. is, they're going to respond to whatever is critical at that moment. 
but they need the training, they need the rehearsal. So I think that's what we're seeing, and it gives me a lot of hope. Amen. And Occupy people were rushed to Ferguson, Missouri, Black Lives Matter. And the Black Lives Matter people, we saw them at Standing Rock. That's right. And the Standing Rock people were at the Women's March. And and so there's... Right. We saw a rising, at least a connecting... Uh, between the different movements. And I think they don't always connect internationally. Mm-hmm. So that's a very interesting thing, that something that m- works here, for example, in the U.S., like the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. which I found very powerful, was absolutely not taken up by my friends and colleagues in Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, no, it's that victim thing. It's the me, me thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, 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 it's not that. It's actually not that. It's mm-hmm. not, look at what happened to me. It's like, one more, one more, one more. Mm-hmm. How many is it going to take, mm-hmm. right? So there, there are these points of intranslatability, if you want, where certain th- things will be picked up and others won't, which mm-hmm. is actually interesting to think about. But it's always there. It's always just ready. Well, Occupy... Uh, eventually became 2,600 tent cities. So yeah. it became international. Right. It was breaking into public space. It was making a tent city down near City Hall or down near your buildings of power in your town. And people all over the world found that that was a good thing for them to do. We found that Standing Rock was all the earth cultures you could think of. There's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people from every yeah. corner of every ecosystem. That was a real jump forward, I think, in, in, in terms of the translatability of movements and movement building. Um, there were just people from all over the world there, and they were sharing this very specific thread that is hard to get to in Western culture, um, but because um, that movement was led by you know spiritual leaders <laughs> from the from the Lakota, we were all able to invest in that spiritual thread, which does bind and tie almost every culture. I think of Occupy a little bit more as like this flattener or this um, plowing under of the earth. Because I I know at least on a local level, it did kind of tear apart and in in the best way, it destroyed um, a lot of existing groups and, and in a good way, uh, rejuvenated the the earth, the soil of activism in New York City, right. and things looked very, very different after Occupy. And yeah. I think it was quite startling for a lot of people because they felt this sea change, right? And they didn't know what what it would look like. Well, how are we going to act now? What will we do? But again, we we go back to those strategies, the strategies of spectacle, the strategies of um, developed really th- in the globalization and the anti globalization movement. So. Right. I mean, the lines are very clear going back, I think. And I think one of the things that's very interesting now is that we're seeing more coalitions where we didn't have them across groups. So very often we'll have a kind of an identity group, you know, like feminists are doing this or, you know, civil rights are doing that, which is all absolutely fundamental to how we're, you know, carrying on our lives now in, in all of these movements. But now, for example, the thing about no wall, no ban, Mm-hmm. Right, so we're we're understanding that a lot of these issues are mm-hmm. really related. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be a Latino or a Mexican to say no wall, right? It's like it's everybody's problem. The same way that the Muslim ban is everybody's problem, and these are related. And so I think that that's a really fruitful way of moving forward. Is thinking we share a lot of issues. The stakes are really really high for a lot of these groups. And if we could work together strategically, 
we might be able to do something. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like the opposite side of the coin is also quite shiny, right? In the sense that people are clinging ever more to identity at the moment. I feel like, uh, like I've heard people talk about immigration as purely an issue of allies, right? And I say, well, I don't think immigration, I'm not an ally necessarily in that issue, right? It's an, it's an issue for me too. It's a principle, right? It's a fundamental principle of our social network of our politics how of, are you a new yorker of our shared of our l- of our commons how are you right so are we going to invest in that as allies or are we going to take it up as our own cause and I, I feel like we are at a juncture with immigration particularly that we have to a lot of people have to make that decision well i'm guided by the zapatistas on that one they have this wonderful thing about we i am we mm-hmm. right and this I, if you want, my, me, myself, belong to different we's and not always in the same way and not always in the same time, but I am we. I'm not a singular. And mm-hmm. so I think that mm-hmm. there I can say, right now I'm going to try to be we with Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Will they have me as a we? Will they recognize me as part of the we? How do I come in? How does that work? Right. So it's not unproblematic how we... Mm-hmm. Um, become these we's, if you want. But I think that that's what the uh, Zapatistas have been trying to do. It's like you don't have to even be indigenous to be a Zapatista. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be anything. You have to be committed to indigenous rights. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. If you're doing that. Indigenous rights are are bound up with the, the lives of all of us because they know the earth and the earth is you know changing now in such a way that many of us won't be around very soon and so we're when you say issues looking for ways that issues are uh, uh, creating bigger we's there's oh, excuse me ma'am didn't mean to there's a uh, there's a way of looking this comes from standing our experience at standing rock there's a way of looking at social change that it is that it that it must operate within er, Earth justice, because if if we're all inhaling our last breath together, then there's only one issue, and that's the issue of life. Um, if if you take it all the way to that extreme end of the logic, but then all of a sudden it's not far away. That it's not at that extreme. When we hear some of the some of the some of the news that Salvatore just recited to us, what's happening all over the world? That can't be separate from human justice issues. We can't, we, we have to use the power of the earth. And it's, it's our indigenous brothers and sisters that teach us. They're like that bridge. I could spend, spend all day in New York not being very, very much in touch with the earth, you know. Right. Except maybe my, the, you know, just the little tree in front of my house. <laughs> not much. But the no, I think that they are our teachers. And again, one of the things that the Zapatistas say, and they said it back there in that first anti-globalization meeting, and they've said it consistently ever since, is that we can't fight your fights for you, right? We're fighting our fight. We're mm-hmm. fighting for sustainability. We're fighting for autonomy from what they call the bad government, right, which we all have. So we're fighting for these 
things, but you have to fight them in New York, and you have to fight them in wherever you are, right? And so I think that that commitment to that struggle is what they're teaching us. And I, I agree mm. with you. It's every single day. This is not a struggle that we're going to take up, you know, once every five years when something big happens. This is a struggle that we do every single day the way that they do it. So being able to identify our arenas of struggle, I think, is really important because we can't do everything. And then people who think that they have to do everything feel, oh, they're exhausted already. How can they even think about that? Mm -hmm. So what can we do in our own environments? And, um, and that's why when these movements that are bigger than any one of us come up like that, we're ready. And we're excited because all the daily struggles then all of a sudden have this different shape, right? It becomes a much more uh, collaborative, collected, communal. And I think especially effort. young people really, they actually want that arena, right? They are so hungry and eager for that arena where they can um, be brave and express their values and sort of align their values with their peers and find out more about their values in a, in a real way, in a physical way. And one of the things we noticed at Occupy the first day was just all these gorgeous, sexy young people like pouring out of the subways, like running. And they had this, uh, this brand new body language. They had paint on their faces and they were running and they had sleeping bags and they were, they were just so <laughs> Facial alive. jewelry, and I, you know, it was, tattoos. But it reminded me more than anything of um, images I had seen in the 90s of in Argentina when communities were actually building walls against capitalism, when they were actually tearing down billboards and blocking the highways to keep tankers from, I, and I thought, oh, this is the, I've never seen that here mm. in the US mm. before. Mm. And there they were. So I, I think the the idea of, it, of identifying our arenas and, and then going and getting in them is really important, but I think it's hard to find that arena. Well, right now in, the, in New York, we have, uh, the immigration cops going into the neighborhoods and identifying um, uh, oftentimes Hispanic people, uh, ethnically, uh, indigenous people, uh, people who by their lights don't have the sufficient documentation, legal standing. And so we want that to be our arena of activity, but, but it, right now we're exploring how we would interact they are they are thugs per se they they drive up to the front of uh somebody's house and they drag the parents out the door in front of the kids they stalk people in their schools and in their tr and they you'll you'll see these plainclothes cops in an idling car outside of a church waiting for people to come out of mass uh, they have no, we have toddlers in jail now. We have children in jail. Uh, they uh, have been released into this world that they think is legal, that they think is good by Donald Trump. Um, I felt, I felt, I felt, I felt, I felt good being at the Statue of Liberty because there was this, this inanimate object, this goddess with a torch, uh, who seemed to be saying we're all welcome unconditionally. And that seemed to be the beginning of making a move on what's happening to my neighbors. Well, I think it's, <coughs> excuse me, I think it's clear that we're living in a fascist period. This is a neo-fascist mm -hmm. government we have. And we have to do everything we can on the smallest level 
on the largest level. I mean, if it's going and picking up somebody else's kid from school, <clears throat> we'll do that, right? Whatever the coalitions are, whatever the possible interventions mm. are, we have to take them. At the same time, I think right now, we have to accept that this is going to be the way it is for another couple of years. I mean, I can't, you know, just get into a deep depression every time I hear the news every morning and just say, I'm, I can't deal with it. I have to deal with it. This is the reality right now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's testing us in a way where I don't think we've been tested in the U.S. where we just took for granted mm -hmm. in a way that we live in a, quote, democracy. Well, that's just so clearly not true. And so it's going to take also getting people to vote, getting people to say, okay, so Bernie didn't win. Okay, but the difference between Bernie and Trump is like, okay, we have to find a way, even for now, to vote better options. They're not going to be perfect by any stretch because we don't have anything like a perfect because candidate. Because the system... Yeah, the system won't right. allow it right now. But then think about the long-term goals, which are how do we overturn the system? How do we go into the schools? How do we go into the educational system, which they're trying to dismantle now mm -hmm. as fast as possible to keep this from happening, and educate people that they have rights, and they have a right to be to a dignified life. That is, I have a right not to be a brute. Mm -hmm. I have a right not to go and arrest somebody who's coming out of school for reasons I don't understand. Right. I have a right not to do that. Right. But who's going to teach you that, right? And how are you going to get that kind of a work done so that the police will not go in there, will not obey blindly, right? So that we can just change the way that we do things around here. But that's going to, that's a long haul. So I think yeah. the activism, the everydayness is the immediate. The voting is the strategic, even when you have to hold your nose. And then the long one is how do we change this culture again culture through change. education, mm -hmm. through art, through everything that we do, right? and maintain our right to be human in this extraordinarily animated world in which the earth needs to be cared for, right? Amen. We're just about out of time, Diana, but I wanted to ask you very quickly to talk to us about um, Presente. Um, last time I heard you speak about anything, you, you talked for a long time about this word, this exclamation, this invocation, Presente. Could you just go out, tell us a little bit about that? So Presente is the title of my new book, and what I love about it is that it brings together a whole, a whole cluster of things that normally we think of apart. So Presente, with an exclamation mark, of course, is the activist rally. We are here, we have our bodies on the line, we are here, Presentes. It's also something, however, that you use when you are a witness so, for example, if they're deporting somebody or somebody's in jail or somebody's been disappeared by the government, you hold up their photograph or you say their name and you say presente so that they're with us. Mm, we are embodying mm. them and we are here also for them. Presente also means to accompany. I am with you. So we are accompanying each other. This struggle is not a singular sh struggle. We are not in this alone, right? So we are presentes to and with each other. Presente is also very much about the bodily, the expanded notion of being in these different places with each other, being able to, mm -hmm. to empathize with each other or being able to communicate with each other in all of these other ways that are not necessarily mediated 
through these systems that we find very, uh, very corrupting. But I think there's also a defiance, right? Um, you can turn your back, but because presente in a way is what people say if they're being called like roll call. Mm-hmm. If you're in school, are you present? Well, you can be present, but you can be present in a different way. Mm-hmm. I can be present as resistant, and that's how I feel like right now mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. I'm present, I'm here, I'm going to be counted, but I'm present as resistant. And that's the same way that I am in Mexico, and I'm going to hold on to that. That is what keeps me there, but it also keeps me saying I'm not going to be present in the way that you want me to. I oh, will not contribute to the arrest and to the diminishment of other human beings. Diana Taylor, Presente, thank you so much Gianna, for being with us today. Really, thank you so much. You have so much to teach us all. Thank you. I feel full of teaching. Me here. too. I, I want to go outside too. now. I'm going to lower myself to the sidewalk. <laughs> Let's go to the choir. Stop Start shopping choir. Breaking break into public into space. Public space.
Hallelujah. Welcome back to the Earth Wants Chaos. You. It was, uh, it was the excitement of Diana's interview just left us going nuts here. Praise so be. we've been getting a lot of uh, feedback on the uh, Facebook post. So I thought I'd just ask some of the questions uh, that some of the people have been asking. Uh, Depashi Day, I'm sorry if I pronounced that a bit wrong, uh, was asking, do you think there is a growing youth movement which will push forward the change after the horrific incidents at Florida at all? I'm just going to hand this over to Deanna. She actually works with young people. I think there is. And that was one of the things that has always made me kind of hopeful. The one thing I worry about is that there is now in the U.S. a youth movement on the fascist right that I think we have to be careful about. And that is something I had not seen to this degree in the U.S. before. Um, then also... Susan Rubin says, fugitive methane is a game changer, is the game changer. Uh, and then methane yes. became a sort of uh, conversation. Um, compared to methane releases from permafrost melt, what is the percentage of methane released by fracking? And then, uh, yeah, so it's all about methane there. Very Do we know that? They compare Sadly, I, I don't have uh, that specific answer for you. I, well, I first mean, of all, it's very it difficult to know to measure the amount of methane coming from uh, the melting permafrost versus the amount coming from fracking wells because it's in invisible. Uh, but I can just repeat unsmellable. That, that even a small leakage rate from the natural gas supply can have a large impact, enough to gut the entire benefit of switching from coal-fired power to gas for a long time. So that's not, you know, obviously... That's not that's inconsiderable. Not okay, and then these aren't uh, questions, um, but uh, th there seems to be a, a, a theme along the thread that some person called Ted Danger wants us to paint his house. Um, right. And then another person from Taos, New Mexico says, can you come down to... Taos, New Mexico, and uh, paint my house. Yes, I, I'm from Taos, New Mexico. That's my home <laughs> place. So anytime I, I can, You've already I go to Taos, house. New Mexico. I've painted houses there before. Um, <laughs> but Up on uh, I am Lama very fair-skinned, so it's hard for me to be outside for that long. So maybe the inside of the house will I'll be I'll hold an umbrella me. above you as you brush stroke. But one of the news items I skipped today, which I did want to just share quickly, is that um, dim lighting evidently affects our spatial logic. And so um, there's really hard scientific data supporting that um, if you sit in a dark room all day, if you sit in a, uh, a cloudy environment even, when you stand up to use your brain, your spatial reasoning is impaired. And it's why people, when they come out of a shopping mall, we always thought it was the advertising, it's the lighting. So when they come out of the shopping mall, they sometimes can't find their car, this is why. You think it's a wormhole? It's not. <laughs> I'm not making so this up. I, yeah, I did think it I'm was a joke. I'm not making this up. Um, right. I'd like to go now to Extinction's Got Talent. Today, uh, the Amur Leopard. The Amur Leopard is nimble-footed and strong. It can run at speeds of up to 37 miles per hour. This incredible animal has been reported to leap more than 19 feet horizontally and up to 10 feet vertically. Um, it lives in temperate broadleaf and mixed forests of Eastern Asia along the borders of Russia and China. Um, several males follow and fight over a single female. They live for 10 to 15 years and in captivity for up to 20 years. The Amur leopard is also known as the Far East leopard, the Manchurian leopard, or the Korean leopard. And there are, we think, somewhere between 30 and 50 of these incredible 
animals left in the oh, wild. It's amazing. And hear the sound, the territorial pant of the Amur leopard. Amur leopard. When the immigration customs enforcement comes to my front door, that's you're going to send out the Amur leopard. (laughs) (laughs) We can learn from the Earthaluya here. We can learn from the Amur leopard. That's how you defend yourself. Well, we defend ourselves together. That's how we defend ourselves. I think that as communities, that must be a collective effort. That might have been the mother of the. That leopard family. No, that was a male leopard that had tripped a uh, a camera. And was defending its family against the camera? No, there's no family present. That was just territorial. Territorial. A border. Hallelujah. We, today with Deanna Taylor, have seen the dimension the beyond nations of both the love and the hate the people we must work with and the people we must whose hate we must neutralize here in the United States we we feel the presence of the anti-social justice warriors, the children of the evangelicals, who uh, you look at them, they're vampires, they're zombies, they are full of hate. They're enjoying their limited vision. It's an itch they itch. There's a sensual, harsh sensual quality to their charge toward us. This week, the top evangelical figure, Billy Graham, passed away at the age of 99. In every one of his, he used to fill up Yankee Stadium over here, a real rock star in the 50s and 60s. He, he would always say, when he was getting people to commit to Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, he would always say, you could die on your way home from Yankee Stadium today. Remember that. An ancient kind of protection racket. That's the kind of thing we're up against here. Uh, These are people who have on purpose simplified good and evil so that they can operate with a certain efficiency. Visiting the Statue of Liberty today, uh, this week, I, I felt an alternative vision, the presente, the welcoming. I am here. You can be here with me. I'm already joining you. The community will come together and we will buoy each other up. It seems to me that we have to come at the 
speaking now uh, to some degree as as a, a citizen in the United States with particular problems to this to this to this culture. One thing we have not done in this culture as as proactive, progressive lefty people is that we have not really admitted how dangerous the evangelical movement is, the heart of Donald Trump's support. They are deadly, and they're enjoying it. They're good at it. It is their culture. We have to, we have to start with, with canceling out that kind of Chuck Schumer. Oh, he's a local politician, people from around the world. He's a local Democrat, a centrist, a hesitating man strategically always retreating we can't hesitate with these people we have to identify them as killers that's what they are that's the species that's their method and on the other hand we have to be culture workers we have to we have to convey to them a kind of allure a kind of love we have to open our hearts we have to do that to the people who are storming into people's homes right now and taking them, taking them off to jail, flying them back to places in, 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 in faraway lands where they sometimes are, are killed within hours. We, we have to confront these cops uh, who are self-convinced. The old Fela Kuti hit, zombie, zombie. They come up to the door and they pull the parents away. The kids are screaming, holding onto their legs. The parents are gone. That's happening right here all day long. Those people, we must find a way to stop them because they're violent, but then to love them, to find the thing in them that is soft, that loves people, that loves their children. It's a new day. We can do this. Presente. Presente. Let's do it. Amen. Thank you, Deanna Taylor, for joining us today. This is The Earth Wants You with Savitri D. and Reverend Billy, a project of the Church of Stop Shopping. Check it out. Amen. Earth, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs>